Good morning, church. It's wonderful to be with you here again, and especially after, you know, many of us who were here last night for the uh, wonderful banquet that we had. Uh, hopefully the tryptophan has mostly worn off. Um, yeah, and as you probably know, it's been a couple weeks since we were in the book of First Thessalonians as we were looking at our sermon series on that. I'm here to tell you, probably be a few more weeks until we get back to looking at First Thessalonians because it's Christmas. In fact, as you heard, it's already the second week of Advent. Uh, and Advent is that just that time of preparation and waiting um, for Christmas Day. So instead of uh, going to 1 Thessalonians, turn with me to the book of Luke chapter 1. Luke 1 is where we're going to be looking to this morning as we just seek to prepare our hearts uh, for the Christmas season. And to do that, we're going to be looking at the story, a moment in the life of a guy named Zechariah. Um, because in the Gospel of Luke, the story of Jesus coming to earth begins with the announcement of a baby. But it might not be the baby that you think, because there are two miraculous births uh, at that very first Christmas. And Jesus' birth, of course, gets the most attention, but John the Baptist's birth is every bit of it part of the Christmas story. And we read about his birth in Luke chapter 1. If you want to follow along with me, you can. Beginning in verse 5, we're going to read all the way to verse 25 this morning. So Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. It says, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he, and his, he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and, he, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and to the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be, be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you do not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah. They were wondering at his delay in the temple. 
And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. They realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and and remained mute. And when his time of service ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in these days, in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach among the people. Let's pray. Lord God, again, we just ask, Lord, that you would just come. Advent is the season where we wait for you to come, and Lord, we know that you are already here, that Christmas has already happened, and that you are present with us even now. And Lord, we want to just rejoice in your presence this morning. Uh, Lord, we pray that, Lord, you would be with us in a very special way through your Holy Spirit, that, Lord, you would help us to hear this truth, to hear the story of Christmas uh, one more time, and, Lord, have it impact our hearts in, in a fresh way like we are hearing it for the first time. Lord, we want to rejoice in this truth that we hear this morning. And, Lord, we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, Christmas, something I've always kind of noticed about Christmas is how Christmas does sort of a strange things to how we perceive time. I know as a, as a grown-up, it seems like every year Christmas is just, it's way off in the distance. Like it's coming, yeah, whatever, but, you know, barely a speck on the horizon of your daytimer. And then, like, you go shopping twice, and it's like, it's gone. Like Christmas, like, it just speeds past you because you're so busy with all you're trying to do. And yet when you're a kid... I mean, I remember being a kid, I remember feeling like Christmas took forever to come. I don't know if you remember sort of waiting, you know, for Christmas when you were a child. Maybe you had like one of those little advent calendars that helped you count the days, but I mean, you couldn't wait for it to get here. Each day you had to wait, it felt like you were waiting a week. It was terrible, especially if there's presents under the tree for you already. It's like, well, let's get this thing over with. Um, Actually, one of my favorite memories uh, from when our family was young was one year we had just finished opening all of our Christmas gifts on Christmas morning, and it was like not just not even an hour later, one of my kids came up and said, "How long until next Christmas, Daddy?" And I was like, "Oh, I am about to break your heart." All right, it can be tough. It can be tough to wait, but now imagine that the time that you had to wait until Christmas—that it was measured better in years than it was in days. And that it wasn't even a handful of years. It was not just a year or two you had to wait for Christmas, or 10 or or 20 years, or even 50 or 100 years. Imagine that waiting for Christmas to come was going to take hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And even then, after all that waiting, you still weren't even sure when it was going to happen. There's just nothing but more waiting in the horizon. Well, that's exactly where we find the people in our passage this morning. That's exactly what they would have been facing as they thought about Christmas. They were waiting for Christ, waiting for the Messiah to come, waiting for God to fulfill the promises that he had made to his people. And yet centuries had passed. And on top of that, for the last 400 years, God had been completely silent. It had been 400 years since God had spoken, last spoken to Israel. There there had been no prophets, no angelic visitors, no word of scripture written in all of those centuries' time. 
And yet after that silence, the time had finally come for God to speak. Because the time for Christmas had finally arrived. But God wasn't just going to sort of, you know, drop Jesus off down and, you know, plop him in the middle of the temple and say, here he is. There were some preparations to make for Jesus coming. And part of that preparation was done by a guy named John. We call him John the Baptist. And John was sent ahead of Jesus to prepare the hearts of the people for the Messiah. Luke chapter 3, verses 2 and 6 says, The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill shall be made low, the crooked shall become straight, the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. John's job was was to go ahead and to turn the hearts of the people back to God. You know, John would sort of begin to break up the hard ground of the hearts of the people and just prepare them for the harvest of salvation in Christ. You know, John was sort of the opening act. Jesus was the main event, but John was the opening act. He warmed the people up to be ready for when Jesus arrived. John prepared the way for Jesus and his ministry. And this is how the Bible tells us that, well, that came about. Uh, Beginning in Luke 1, beginning in verse 5. It says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Now that's just, that's kind of the introduction. And we'll stop there for a moment because what I want you to see about John's parents, uh, both Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth, were both from the priestly line of Aaron. Uh, They had this legacy of ministry in their families, in their family tree. Today we might say something like, they were pastor's kids. You know, but they were like uber pastor kids. I don't know, because basically their daddy was a pastor and his daddy was a pastor and his daddy was a pastor and his daddy was a pastor. And you could do that all the way back to Moses' brother, Aaron. You know, this is a legacy that is going on in this family. And Zechariah, we're told, followed in his father's footprints and he himself became a priest. He was a man whose whole life was set apart for ministry and serving God. And he wasn't alone. Estimates at that time say there's somewhere around 18,000 other priests who are ministering at that time. And that's a lot of priests. Uh, And you know, the temple where they would have served was not a big place. If all the priests showed up on all the same day, it would be, it would be busy. It would, there'd be no room, no Tony cooks in the kitchen. It would, nothing would get done. So it was actually King David uh, who broke up all the priests into smaller divisions, small groups. Uh, and there were actually 24 of them. If you're interested, they're listed in First Chronicles chapter 24. Um, but basically, there's 24 different divisions of priests, and each division took turns serving in the temple. Uh, and they would actually serve just, they would serve for one week's time. They would do it twice a year, once in the spring and once in the fall. And I tell you that not just so you know your history of what's going on here, but because those numbers are going to actually come into play in our passage in a moment. But for now, understand both Zechariah and Elizabeth, they grew up in homes serving God. And they also grew up with lives dedicated to holiness. 
Which is why Luke goes on to tell us in verse 6, And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. And you know, anytime the Bible says, talks about someone and says they're blameless, I think there could be no higher compliment than for God to look at your life and just say, you are upright and blameless before me. I think that is like life goal right there. Of course, blameless didn't mean, you know, that Zechariah and Elizabeth were, were without sin uh, or that they were perfectly perfect in everything they did. It means simply that when God looked at their lives, he said, you know what, guys, you are doing it right. You are living the way I want my people to live. You know, maybe perfect or blameless isn't the best word here, but they were consistent and they were faithful in living their life for God. And God said, good job, like, exactly. You see, for faith, faith for them was not just sort of for public display. They didn't just, you know, do, you know, they didn't just put on faith to impress people around them. Faith was, it, their faith was part of who they were. They lived it out. And we're told they kept all of the Lord's commandments. That in itself, if you read the Old Testament, that's a big job. If you know how many commandments there were in the Old Testament for Israel to follow, it's, it's, it's a heavy burden. And on top of that, Zechariah as a priest, there would have been even more burdens on him as a priest, more rules that he had to follow that were specific to them. But God says they did it, which would seem actually like a pretty good way to live, a pretty fulfilling life for both Zechariah and Elizabeth until we see that there was just one glitch. In their life, there was sort of one setback. There was one hiccup that kind of came to affect the course of their entire life. As verse 7 adds, but they had no child. Because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. You see, there was one sort of rain cloud in this otherwise sunny life of Zechariah and Elizabeth, and it was that they had no kids. They had no children. And to make matters worse, we're told Elizabeth was barren. You see, this isn't just a matter of, you know, Zach and Lizzie deciding, you know, kids aren't part of our life plan. Let's just go on without them. No, this is, this is a loving, compassionate couple, brokenhearted by the fact they can't conceive. It's a heart of a mother with no child to hold, and it's the heart of a father with no child, um, you know, empty arms. And as much as that would have been, I think, a very personal tragedy for this couple, it also carried a real social stigma in the culture that they lived in. You know, to be seen as barren in that culture was basically to be seen as one who was being afflicted by God. If you were barren, people would have looked at you and they would have wondered, what's wrong with you? What sin did you commit? To be, to be punished by God in this way. What secret are you hiding that God would sentence you to such a fate? A bit later on in verse 25 of our passage, Elizabeth talks about it uh, being her disgrace or, or, or a reproach that she bared among the people. And we're told with both of them advanced in years. I'm sure they never expected that to change. It's into this sort of brokenness and this shame that they would have felt in this heartache that we see God intervenes. Verse 8 says, Now while he was serving as a priest before God, 
When his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. You know, after all of those years, feeling like God must have somehow turned his back on him and his wife, we're told Zechariah actually gets a chance of a lifetime. He gets chosen to enter into the temple and burn incense before the Lord. Now think about that. Of the thousands of priests from all the different divisions, this day it is Zechariah's name that comes up. And again, you need to know that most priests would never actually have an honor like this. You go back to those numbers. 18,000 priests, 24 different divisions, serving only 14 days a year, and there's only, you know, so many opportunities for this to go around. Most priests, again, statistically, never got the chance. And, but for the people of Israel, this was not something they thought of as chance at all. You see, drawing lots for them was not something they saw as, as random chance. It was actually a way for God to speak. This was God himself choosing Zechariah by lot for this special honor. So for Zechariah, after you know, a lifetime of humble service and after all those years of humiliation because he had no child, this must have felt like just a moment of redemption. This was sort of, I think in his mind, God giving him one moment of nobility before he died. One thing that he could finally sort of lift his head high about. One thing that people could talk about other than the fact that he had no children. Now he could be known as the one who, you know, burned incense before the Lord in the holy place. That could be his legacy. But as we see, God had so much more in store for Zechariah than just burning incense. As we read in verse 11, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And honestly, when I read that, that you know, every time I read that, I always wonder, did it take Zechariah a moment to figure out which prayer the angel was talking about when he said, your prayer's been answered? Because I can see, I can see Zechariah praying for, you know, for a child when he was a young man, you know, dreaming about a family, you know, the world wide before him. I can see Zechariah praying when he was in his 20s, you know, and he still had, you know, so much time before him to raise a child. I can see Zechariah praying for a child into his 30s, you know, time's short, but there's still time and there's this window of opportunities for things to turn around. I can see Zechariah even praying into his 40s. Now a prayer of desperation for one last chance, one great miracle before he and his wife were too old. But now even those prayers are probably decades old. And I wonder, is Zachariah still praying this prayer for God to send him a child? Or if those prayers for God to grant him a child were already sort of decades old? Which I think makes Zechariah's response make more sense. You skip down to verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. 
I just, uh, side note, I love Zachariah's tact right there. I'm an old man, but my wife is just advanced in years. Don't, it's very diplomatic. So life lesson, don't call your wife an old woman. Um, but the question he's really asking here is, like, are you sure? Like, are you, do you even have the right Zechariah? Like, do you know my circumstances? And the angel's response to him is basically to say, Zechariah, this is as sure as it gets. Verse 19, the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you, to bring you this good news. And behold, you'll be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be filled, fulfilled in their time. And I think on hearing those words, even if, his, even if his mouth was now silent, Zachariah's heart must have sang with joy that God would do all that he had promised. And notice the angel's words there, his final words, that this would all come about in its time. Now, some translations say, at its proper time. And I find that interesting because I'm sure if you asked Zachariah, he would have felt the proper time was decades ago. And, you know, so often we struggle with, with just that. We struggle with God's timing in our lives. We struggle with the idea of why have, you know, things in my life not worked out the way I think they should have. But Gabriel points us to a very essential truth that even in those moments when we're confused, even in those moments when we doubt, even at times when we feel like God's timing is late, even at times when we think that God seems silent, God's plan is still perfect. And it's not just for Zechariah. It's for us all. Because look at, back at what the angel actually said. Beginning of verse 13. The angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will call his name John. And, he, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And when you grasp what the angel is saying here, you begin to realize this isn't just good news for Zechariah. This is good news for us all. For all people, everywhere, at any time. Because in this passage, God isn't just answering the prayers of one old man. He was answering the prayers of the entire world. Because God is breaking his 400 years of silence with a message of hope. It's the message of the coming Savior that he promised. And again, I think there's times in every one of our lives when we feel like Zechariah, before he stepped into the temple that day, where we wonder, what is God up to? We wonder if our prayers are even being heard. We, you know, we feel like God is silent, and yet God's answer still to all of those questions is to offer us hope. Hope in a Savior who has been born. Jesus is a Savior who gives us hope even in the midst of a hopeless world. Jesus speaks 
healing and care into our greatest needs and suffering. When we're gripped by loneliness, Jesus is an ever-present friend. When violence and conflict shake the world, Jesus is a faithful Lord. When you feel like a failure and you can do nothing right, Jesus gives you the unconditional love and value of being a child of God. When sickness and death and suffering and trials come your way, Jesus is an unending source of comfort. Jesus offers us hope in our trials, strength in our weaknesses, light when we've lost our way, and forgiveness from the bondage of our sin. That's the role the Savior came to fill. That's why Jesus, that's why Christmas happened. And if you're like me, too often you can forget just the true magnitude of what Christmas really means. It can just get lost in the shuffle. That the creator of the universe itself became a man. That God became flesh. And that he got dust on his feet and he lived and he died and he did it all so that we could know what life truly is. So in the few moments I have remaining, I just want to give you a few quick applications this morning about our passage. Because, you know, God uses Zechariah and eventually John, his son, to help prepare the world for the coming of the Savior. And as we reflect on Zechariah and his life, I think that Zechariah himself gives us examples of how we can still, even today, get our hearts ready for Christmas. And I have five of them for you that I hope you will put into practice. Uh, The first is simply live a faithful life. You know, even with all of the disappointment that Zechariah had to face in his life, he didn't give up. He didn't throw in the towel. He just, he still, you know, lived a life of quiet, faithful faith, you know. And if we want to get our hearts ready for Christmas, we need to be faithful. Just be faithful in all that God calls us to do. Faithful in the little things that make such a difference. You know, faithful to daily prayer. Faithful to reading our Bibles. Faithful to fellowship and church attendance. Faithful to living a life of worship and glorifying God. Faithful to hospitality. Faithful to simple obedience. That's what God seeks from us. And as a young man, I always kind of, well... And I was like, God, here I am. I'm, you know, I want to do spectacular things for you. I'll climb the highest mountain. I'll swim the deepest sea. Just let me know and I'll do it. And you know, I think God sort of looked down and says, well, great, read your Bible every day. And I was like, no, I want I mean, big things, God. I want to, you know, I want to, no. It's, it's, it's often those simple things of daily obedience that make the difference. It's about living a faithful life every moment of every day. So live a faithful life. Great way to prepare for Christmas. Second thing, be devoted to prayer. You know, Zechariah was a man of prayer. God answered his prayer, and he took his needs and his thoughts and his hurts to God. And again, this is something we all need to do. And that, again, is never easy, especially at this time of year. Christmas can be crazy. We can get so busy running around. And with so much to do and shop for and get ready, it can be, well, it can be nuts. Um, I always love Henry, Henry Nouwen, an author I enjoy. He describes our inner life and he says, our inner life is like a banana tree full of monkeys. It takes a lot of work and a lot of time to get the monkeys to be quiet long enough to be still before God. That is so true, especially at Christmas. But that's what we're to do. The role of Advent season is to prepare our hearts. It's time to quiet our inner lives. Time to prayerfully reflect so that we can be ready to celebrate the coming of our Lord. Prayer prepares our hearts to celebrate the coming of Christ. 
Now, a third thing I think we see in Zechariah that I think the Lord can greatly use in our lives is that Zechariah was willing to be interrupted. You know, when the angel showed up before Zechariah, you know, Zechariah could have said, sorry, God, like too old. Like, you know, I think that, cha- Lord, that chapter in my life is closed. Me and Elizabeth, we've been looking at a nice retirement condo. We're going to do some traveling. You know, just find someone else. But Zechariah didn't. He, he was willing to let God change his plans. And I often think about that. You know, this Christmas, if God were to tap you on the shoulder and, and point you in a new direction, would you listen? Because you know what? If you're like me, you have so overbooked your life that you just don't really have time and space left to, to follow God if he's going to take you someplace new. I mean, you have too many other things to do. Like, you know, God, I'm too busy. You know, I'm sorry. I just, I have too much on my plate to, to serve and do that or, or to reach out to that person that you've been putting on my heart or to volunteer in that area that you, you kind of been speaking to me about. I'm sorry, but I just can't because I got this stuff. But God uses people who are willing to be interrupted. That's a great lesson. Then fourth lesson I would give you this morning is tell people about Jesus. Um, I love in our passage, we're told in verse 21, beginning in 21, the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them and they realized he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. That was torture for a pastor not to be able to speak, but uh, I don't know if it's the same phrase, but Zechariah, even though he's mute, what I love is that he desperately wanted people to know what God was up to. It was good news that he had just heard that he didn't want to keep to himself. He wanted to share it with others. And you know, again, Christmas is an opportunity for us to do the same, to tell others what God is up to and what God has done for us in Christ. And you know, you may even find that people are more open to hearing about Christ at Christmas time. But just let others, other people in your life, know what God has done. Take opportunity to tell them about Jesus. And that leads us to our final point this morning, and that is just hold on to your hope. You know, I firmly believe that even after centuries of silence, Zechariah was a man living with hope, living with confidence that God was faithful and his promises would come true. You know, even the Bible says about Jesus in Isaiah 9, it says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And Israel lived with that hope constantly before them. And now it's our turn. Now as Christians, we don't celebrate Christmas to have time off work or to get presents and, you know, from friends and family, as wonderful as those things can be. Christmas is not about shopping or tinsel or wrappings or trappings. Christmas is about God breaking into the world as a baby. It's about the love of God that would not sit idle while mankind died in sin. It's about God making good on his word and being willing to pay any price to show himself faithful. Jesus was the son of God who was born in a manger to die on the cross for the sins of the world. That's what Christmas is about. And we need to live with that hope in our lives. And you know, as we come to the communion table again this morning, that's, that is what we remember. We remember that Jesus came for a reason. 
We remember the forgiveness he offers. We remember the love that he showed. We remember the mercy that he grants to us, the extravagant grace. We remember the broken body and the spilt blood of the cross of Jesus Christ. And we remember Jesus and the hope that we have because of him.